Coming up this hour, we're talking Ellen DeGeneres, Fixer Upper, and Chris Butler from the Anne Campaign. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. If you're unfamiliar with the show, a couple of things you should know. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there, even other things just for funsies. And you can comment there. You can send us a message if you want. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you're unfamiliar with the way podcasts work like we are, Subscribing, rating, and reviewing somehow does really help us out a whole lot. And if uh, you wouldn't mind with whatever spare 60 seconds you have, that helps us out. And we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I'm going to begin the show a little odd, Brian. I got two stories real briefly just to touch on that are completely unrelated. And then I want to talk a little bit about Ellen DeGeneres, who's been under a bunch of heat lately. And someone wrote an article kind of talking about this idea of commodifying kindness, which I thought might have some interesting implications for the church and for Christians in general. Uh, the first story is just sort of lighthearted. Apparently, Fixer Upper is returning. Are you a Fixer Upper guy? Is that something that uh, gets you excited in any way, shape, or form? No, I know how happy this makes my wife. She oh, really? loves okay. that show. I never minded it. it. I could always handle like one or two, and then I had to be done. Yeah. <laughs> and then where she could watch a lot in a row. Yeah, I need to share this article with her because she is going to be thrilled by this because uh, it is, and it's a good, lighthearted, you know, good-natured show. So I do enjoy it, but I, I can only take it in small doses. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's enjoyable. Two things are tricky. One, once you watch it, you know, three or four days in a row, you can start to think like, man, maybe I should just add a bathroom to my, you know, these like really <laughs> extensive jobs, you know, in a 40 minute show seem like, seem like nothing. But I do like though, that they both been pretty outspoken about their faith. And to some degree, it seems like they actually really are caring holistically for sure. their cities in some pretty wonderful ways. So either way, maybe you don't care, but uh, I figured I'd toss that out there. The second story here is, uh, is a bit more intense and I'm not going to weigh in here, but I imagine Brian and I will talk about this a little bit later. Uh, leaked police body cam video shows new details of George Floyd's fatal arrest. Have you watched this video yet? I did. It was really hard, man. And uh, it brought kind of uh, into a little bit more of reality of what happened in that moment and how just confusing it was. Uh, but it humanized it even more to hear him talk and to know that that was his last moments. I found it really, really, really difficult to watch. Yeah, it's incredibly painful. Uh, Matt Walsh has weighed in. Ben Shapiro has weighed in. I imagine there'll be a whole lot more in the next couple of days. I don't feel prepared to talk about it just yet uh, for a number of reasons, but we did post it to the Facebook page. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your perspectives, um, in what ways does this shape or offend or anger you? Uh, all that's fair game on the Facebook page, but fair warning, it is it is really, really tough to watch. Yep. This, uh, this article that I kind of stumbled upon by uh, Kevin Porter from Washington Post, this headline reads, Ellen DeGeneres turned kindness into a brand. Now the brand may bring her down. And the, the retweet that I think I saw was somebody said, this is a great article on the notion of commodifying kindness. What is happening here in this story? Yeah, Ellen DeGeneres has really been in the crosshairs uh, in the last couple of weeks. And, it, and every time you think it's done, it kind of keeps going. Uh, but Kevin Porter writes, for nearly two decades, Ellen DeGeneres has been television's queen of nice 
Now her reign might be coming to an end and the kindness she wore as a medallion might become the millstone around her neck. And that kind of gets at the commodification of nice, as you said. I mean, if you've ever watched Ellen's show, she always kind of opens or closes by just saying, be kind to one another. Uh, and now it's kind of coming out that the culture of her show, and some people are saying she knew full well, other people that it was people under her, but whatever else, it's got her name on it, uh, was just a toxic culture. It was the furthest thing from kind. Mm. And uh, people are really piling on now and uh, coming out. I saw her original like um, uh, like uh, band person on the show came out today to say, yeah, all of this is true. Um, and other people have said it. And I do think it is an interesting thing that somebody who has been held up as like, uh, uh, as, as you said, the person who um, is nice and is uh, holding up niceness. And now when she's proven or her show is proving not to be living up to that, people are really uh, going after her for it. Let me just read a little bit more from the article. It says the ethos can be redeemed and generous with it, even amid today's high stakes cancellations, which you and I have talked about a lot on the show. True reform is not impossible, though it requires not branded kindness, but the real deal. I, I feel like that's a sermon series. Uh, mm. We saw it with Jimmy Fallon when confronted with a past Saturday Night Live sketch in which he wore blackface. The late night host devoted an entire episode to conversations with the head of the NAACP and Don Lemon in an effort to own his past. It was awkward a little stagey and not that funny, but it was something resembling accountability in its own imperfect way. It was kind. So what would authentic kindness look like in DeGeneres' situation? Well, nothing like what she has done so far. Her lone statement was too gymnastic to count toward any atonement. In her framing, her show's issues owe to her lack of involvement, not because she shaped the culture and passed it down. Her wife passed the buck even more brazenly on Instagram, attributing the negative press to bot attacks. But assuming some real kindness lives under all that marketing, imagine what the next steps for DeGeneres and her show could be. She could choose not to cut and run, but instead to have vulnerable conversations with ex-staffers who felt wounded by their time on the show. She could talk to experts about what it takes to practice actual kindness. She could even lighten it up and have a reunion with Johnson to show some measures of self-awareness. This controversy has created an opportunity for DeGeneres to clarify, to understand, to listen, and to learn. That's probably stuff that we could all do, right? The undertaking would no doubt be difficult, but that's the thing. It's hard to truly be kind. So what, what do you think of some of those suggestions there? I think it's wonderful. It's really well put and uh, kind of saying that there's a pathway out for her if she wants, but it's going to be difficult and take time and some authenticity uh, as opposed to uh, you know, kind of just putting out statements. I think it's, it is really good. I do think you hinted at uh, something the church could learn from here. You know, I think the church talks a lot about kindness and being loving and all of these forgiving and other things. And I do think uh, in much the same way, if those are the badges that we're going to hold up, if we're going to wear, we got to ask ourselves, is it actually true about us? Because uh, it's the same way that Ellen held up my, my culture here is kind. And now when it's not, it's just kind of coming in against her. I think the church faces the same thing often in the eyes of our culture. Yeah. It's one of the things that I've, the older I get, the more I realize why it's so heartbreaking sometimes to meet in particular Christian heroes behind closed doors that don't live up mm -hmm. to, you know, the books they are selling or the sermons they give, which I, you know, again, at a 30,000 foot level, he's like, Oh, well, don't put your confidence in man. I, I know those verses. I totally understand that. I think part of what, I've found so disheartening and I imagine so many other people with me is that when you really look up to someone, I don't think it's wrong to look up to people who like Ellen 
sort of have their persona inextricably linked to a certain ideal like kindness or for the Christian love or forgiveness or any of those to find out that they're actually not those things can be really disorienting. And I do think a part of what the call here I find so fascinating is, yeah, the, the, the Jimmy Fallon thing probably wasn't even great television, but it was honest. And, and that was part of what led to restoration. I think churches maybe sometimes feel like, well, that wouldn't really make for a very good sermon. You're like, yeah, maybe it wouldn't, but that still might be the right thing to do to be vulnerable, to be honest. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you can even think of, you know, a recent time where you saw a church or a church leader do that well. Yeah, I don't know any particular one that comes to mind, but you're so right that uh, that I think people, especially now in our culture, they, they see right through spin, right? They see right yeah, through right. excuse making and spin. And but because we're so used to that, people really genuinely are attracted to even uh, clumsy um, authenticity and honesty. And so I do think owning our problems and owning what we've done wrong. I really think in a weird way, our culture, which is into canceling people and all this actually shows a lot of grace in those moments. My guess is uh, if Ellen is feeling bad and if she is feeling remorseful, uh, she will be embraced, but we haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen if that's actually, you know, how she's feeling right now. Yeah, man. Time will tell. I guess we'll find out. We'd love to know what you think. You can uh, comment at the article over on our Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next, an interview. You are not going to want to miss pastor Chris Butler. who's not only a pastor, a serial organizer. He's also co-author of the brand new book, compassion and conviction from the Ant campaign. That interview is coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles there. You can send us messages if you have ideas for future shows. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing to the podcast on whatever platform you use helps us out and the show out a whole bunch. And we're really grateful for all of you who've done that already. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have for the first time, but hopefully not the last time, Pastor Chris Butler on the show. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. I am doing uh, very well. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely. our pleasure. Would, would you just take a, a minute or two or even three, if you want, and introduce <laughs> yourself to our audience? Yes, indeed. I, I hope I don't take too many. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a simple guy. I'm a, uh, a pastor uh, here in Chicago. And, uh, and now down in the South suburbs, we have another uh, campus now. Hmm. Um, but my background uh, actually started in community organizing. Um, I, I grew up in the west side of Chicago, got involved with community organizing work uh, when I was in sixth grade, 12 years old. Um, and I like to say I was raised in the wild by organizers. <laughs> um, from the time I was 12. Uh, and so I've, I've just done a lot of organizing work since that time um, in pretty much every kind of platform, uh, uh, local community organizations, advocacy organizations, um, legislative advocacy, electoral campaigns. Um, you know, my, my heart uh, and passion really was and is to build uh, institutions that uh, improve people's lives. Hmm. Uh, and I, I did that work. I, I worked in a lot of different organizations, started a consulting firm to help other people do that work. And then uh, all of a sudden got called me into ministry. Hmm. I learned as a pastor that the, the, uh, 
the platform is different, but many of the um, many of the principles are the same. We're still hmm. uh, church is definitely an institution uh, that's here to make uh, impact in people's lives, perhaps the most significant impact uh, in the lives of people. So I, love that. Uh, I, I think I'm still about the work. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Chris, I, uh, we're grateful for you joining us. I remember really one of the first times I heard the concept of a community organizer was obviously when, when President Obama came around. And I'm just curious, how would you describe what a community organizer does, what, what you're trying to accomplish? Help us understand what a community organizer does. Yeah, I think it, it goes right back to that mission that I just talked about. It's, it's really about um, building institutions, helping people build institutions uh, that can um, – make a positive impact uh, in, a, in a person's life. So a lot of times I think right now when people think about community organizing, they think uh, very much about electoral politics and some of the um, uh, very difficult things that we're facing in the kind of civic and political world right now. But, um, you know, if you organize a food co-op, uh, people coming together to share costs of, uh, of, of, of creating access to quality food in a neighborhood, um, that's organizing. Um, anytime you're helping people uh, come together to do together the things that they cannot do on their own, mm. um, you're organizing. Hmm. One of the organizations that uh, we really appreciated on this show a lot and tie into a lot of sort of our heartbeat and hope for the show in general is the Anne campaign. You're a part of uh, a brand new book called Compassion and Conviction. Would you tell us a little bit more about the Anne campaign and that book specifically? Yeah, so the, the AIM campaign uh, is, is one of these uh, kinds of institutions, organizations that I'm very uh, excited about. Uh, it, the AIM campaign is um, a, a campaign that is, is challenging the, uh, the false but generally accepted narrative that there is this binary uh, hmm. between um, uh, truth and love, between uh, the concept of uh, s- social justice and moral order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the AIM campaign uh, really is stepping forward into the civic and political space and saying, no, um, these are not either or propositions. They are both and propositions, mm-hmm. especially uh, for those of us who approach this from a biblical perspective, because um, the Bible and the Christ of the Bible uh, calls for justice and order calls for uh, mm-hmm. truth and love, calls for, as the title of the book, compassion and conviction. Um, and so that is the uh, kind of the heartbeat of the end campaign uh, is to is to put forward that uh, that narrative and to bring people together uh, who who believe in that, because so many people. Uh, on either side of, of this kind of existing political binary actually feel really not at home in their kind of partisan and ideological uh, uh, spaces because there are things about the party uh, and the ideological group that really resonate uh, with the with the heart that beats with the passion of scripture. And then there are things on both sides that really just make you cringe. Um, and, and the end campaign has become a place where those folks can step in uh, and uh, celebrate the things uh, that need to be celebrated and call to account the things that need to be called into account. Um, and so this book, Compassion and Conviction, really came out of that work. Um, we really felt like there was a need to put forward um, a, 
a book that could help people structure uh, an approach to thinking about uh, civics and politics from this uh, uh, biblical perspective that uh, that accounts for the, the compassion and the conviction uh, that's found in Scripture. So we, we wanted to give some structure to it, mm. uh, give some, some language and a lexicon, uh, and, and really create a platform where people can um, – begin to live this work out in, in local communities and local churches uh, in a real practical way. So we hope that the book will be a real practical guide to how to think and begin to work uh, in civics and politics from this kind of frame. Mm. Could you paint a picture for us and for our audience? Uh, if the church does this well and starts to get this right in a culture that doesn't really do this well, uh, what kind of impact do you think the church could have? I think that the church can have a huge impact if we do this well, because, um, one, there are a lot of believers still, uh, in, in these United States. And, and I really think that this kind of thinking, speaking and, uh, acting in the civic and political space really will resonate with a lot of people. Um, and then I think we can also have an impact generally in the space because it also makes sense. Like that's one of the things I love about the scripture in general. Um, in, in many, many ways, it just makes sense. Um, there is no one, uh, uh, political party or, or ideology that has everything completely, uh, figured out. And in, in, uh, in many ways, it has become unacceptable to mm. question your, uh, your party. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I wrote recently that, um, it, these days, disagreement uh, is interpreted as disloyalty, um, right. and, and, and that that shouldn't be the case. So I think that we can uh, really have a very positive impact on our democracy if we do this well. So I know that we only have about thirty seconds left, but I, I would love to just hear from from your perspective. Why why do you think that we're so drawn to this sort of binary? This it's like a pseudo tribalism. The the disloyalty thing that you mentioned, like what, what do you think forces us or at least draws us into those types of categories? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we can come back to it after the break, but yeah. in, a, in a word, sin, hmm. um, you know, we're, we're just drawn as broken people to bad behavior. And hmm. this is bad behavior is destroying us, even though it feels so good. Hmm. That's, that's a good word. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Chris Butler. He's a pastor. He's a serial organizer and co-author of the new book from the Ant Campaign, Compassion and Conviction. I cannot recommend enough that you pick this up. He's going to stick around with us for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get podcasts. We're joined for a second segment by Pastor Chris Butler. He's not only a pastor, a serial organizer, but he's a co-author of a brand new book called Compassion and Conviction from the And Campaign. Buy the book, follow him on Twitter and Facebook. They're one of the best follows that we've had on the show, and Uh, Pastor Chris, one of the things that Brian and I try to do on the show, often very imperfectly, but is to create some space for people to disagree, to have honest dialogue, because it feels like, like you were saying in the first segment here, that we are drawn to sort of these binary categories where it's easy to demonize, quote unquote, the other, right? Whether that's theologically or politically, 
And I'd love to hear a little more of your perspective and your heart. How do we get better at breaking down some of those barriers so we can actually, like the book proposes, have compassion and conviction? What are some ways that we can we can live that out better? So what I've found with um, with a, a lot of believers who have a desire to get involved in civics and politics, and if, if you're not that kind of believer, we uh, make the argument for why every American is is necessarily political, but there's so many of us who really do want to uh, be involved. Uh, but we're kind of taught by the culture to start with the politics and start with the political questions, um, which can easily drive us to the binary, especially right. when you include the sin factor. I mean, there, there are folks who figured out that driving this, a uh, huge wedge uh, could advantage uh, certain political schemes, hmm. but you put something bad out there in front of broken people who have a proclivity to do the wrong thing, uh, and a lot of people are going to get it. But I think the way you 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 get around it is not really get around it. You get above it by start always start your reasoning. If, if you're a believer, it doesn't matter if you're thinking politics, uh, finances, uh, relationships. Uh, is what every good pastor is saying to to, to their parishioners. You got to start with the scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's going to be a a foundation of, of brotherhood and togetherness and and fellowship um, that's higher than our politics. It doesn't mean that we're all going to always agree um, because the Bible doesn't tell us what the marginal tax rate should be. Right? And we're going to disagree about that. But there's a way uh, to disagree that can still be uh, healthy for the democracy, uh, healthy for the church. Um, but I think for the believer, the way to get to, you know, the end campaign framework is to make sure that you start your reasoning uh, from from the scriptures, because the scripture is going to tell you to love your brother. Mm-hmm. going to tell you to agree with your brother on every question of politics. No. But you got to love them, and that's going to dictate a lot of how you disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to dictate what you disagree about. Um, and when we have that fellowship together, and this is what I believe the AIM campaign is doing, is trying to give a home to people who can feel homeless inside of a political party or an ideological group. Mm-hmm. And we're not advancing that people should leave their polit- political parties or disengage from the ideological group. We're just advancing that as Christians, we have to have the courage to call out our tribe when our tribe is wrong. Right. And fellowship and the courage of scripture can actually give us the ability to do that. And that is what our society, our democracy desperately needs right now is people who can celebrate when our people do right and criticize when our folks do wrong. Cause frankly, the other side criticizing is not getting the job done because that just drives the, the division further. But when, when somebody who got, you know, uh, uh, progressive bona fides uh, stands up and says, hey, but there's an order to the family, mm. right? And we can't just abolish it because we want to. Mm. That raises a lot more, um, I think it raises the question in a lot more effective way. Mm. Yeah. 
Chris, what about the pastor or just the Christ follower out there who goes, you know what? I'm apolitical. I don't want to be in politics. I just want to preach the gospel. What would you say to that person? So the, the first line, I love it. Um, the first line of the preface of the book says every Christian in America is political. Any person who lives in America and says that they are apolitical is only uh, deceiving themselves. We every we all have to uh, be engaged in, uh, in, in politics, whether we like it or not. Um, we can choose not to exercise our citizenship, but we cannot choose not to have it, right? So uh, our democracy, our, our system of government, this representative democracy, this republic, how, however we call it, um, places that burden on citizens. It is, we really are uh, government of the people. Hmm. Um, and so if, if you, if you don't engage um, in, in, in the political life, it's not because you don't have power, political power. Mm-hmm. If you're a citizen of the United States, if you live in the United States, you do have political power. The only question is, are you going to exercise it and how are you going to exercise it? And I would mention to the believer that if you have this power that could be used as a significant platform to love your neighbor and you choose not to exercise that power, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, talk to your pastor about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think you bring an interesting point because I think people perhaps have talked to their pastors and they've gotten mixed signals. And I think we've often talked on the show. Sometimes we confuse political for partisan. Right. And those aren't the same thing. And I'm, yeah. and you said a phrase there a little bit earlier. We talked about being or feeling homeless in your own political party or ideology. What, what are some ways to navigate through that? Like if people are feeling like like exactly as you were saying, man, if I if I even raise a concern about something from, quote unquote, my party, well, then I just get alienated. I seem to get cast out. How can we at a individual level and maybe at a corporate level actually begin to take some steps forward in that regard? Yeah. So one thing that I always urge people is, is the uh, I think it's a tip O'Neill quote, at least that's where I've heard it described too, but all politics is local. And I think the more local politics becomes, the less partisan it becomes. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it becomes about the, the bread and butter brass tax issues of everyday life. Uh, and, and I think that's where you really learn politics and, and that's where you can do civics well. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it just feels different when you do it locally. Um, there, there was a, a, a something that I read very recently. I wish I could uh, give you the right uh, <laughs> point in the right direction, but it was talking about how the 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 less engaged somebody is with kind of national media, the less inclined they are toward this kind of uh, partisanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, I think the more local you get, the less partisan you get. Um, and so think, thinking about it through that lens, uh, I think is helpful. Um, and then finding spaces like the end campaign where you can just find a space to breathe. Cause yeah, sometimes, uh, uh, scripture tells us that in first Peter, right? Sometimes you are going to, uh, be criticized and called an evildoer for the good that you do. Right. Um, and you need a place to, to, be refreshed and encouraged. The church would be that kind of place. And the aim campaign is trying to be a civic uh, space to do the, that, uh, that kind of thing. I love that. Chris, just as we're wrapping up, where can people go to learn more about you or get the book or learn about your church? Just hit us with whatever website or email address you got. 
Yeah, I would uh, send folks, if you want to learn about the church, that's cecnetwork.church, uh, and visit andcampaign.org to more, learn more about the end campaign and more, more about the book. That's phenomenal. The book, again, is called Compassion and Conviction from the End Campaign. Pastor Chris Butler, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you all so much for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us at our houses. You can find digital representations of us on the interwebs. Here's a couple of places. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. You can go and watch the initial video that Brian and I made about the show when we didn't even know each other, and it's super awkward to watch. Um, would Would you agree with that assessment, Brian? Is that accurate? Not only is it awkward to watch, it was awkward to do. Do you remember we were in like a warehouse on the couch? Yeah, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. It was like, here, meet us at this undisclosed address. And we're like, uh, is this normal? No, it, was, this- it was well made. But like you said, you and I barely knew each other. And it was like, hey. And one of the questions was like, tell us about the show. And we're kind of like, I we don't know yet. We haven't <laughs> we haven't even well, the, started. It's, it's that point. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the common ground. And, you know. <laughs> and I was like, I think we're going to talk about Jesus. We'll find out who, who knows. This was still like two months before we actually started. But anywho, that's there. If ever, if ever there was a case to go to 1160hope.com slash the common good, there it is. We're also podcasted on every single conceivable podcast platform, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. All that does help us out a whole lot. Here, here's an article, Brian, that I think – We'll have a whole lot more to do with the uh, the age and stage of your kids rather than mine. Right. But the headline caught my attention. It says why you should stop thinking of your kids' gaming time as wasted time. What is going on here? I'm very when you post this article, I'm very interested in this article because, as you said, my kids are this age, and my son plays video games, but not nearly like how amount I hear other kids playing video games, which okay. is just unbelievable. So I'm interested in this article. Let me start. I'll read it. Uh, one evening, I called my sons to come to eat and got no response. True confession. In anger, I marched into their room and kicked off the power button on their gaming console. (laughs) You'd have thought it was the end of the world. The boys were so mad and upset at me as their screens went blank. I brought them down to dinner, and my response to their behavior would typically have been, you're wasting away your life on video games. But that night, I chose to be curious instead of critical. I asked them, why is video gaming so important to you? I'm so glad I asked. My boys were surprised, responding, Mom, you really want to know? I replied, yes. They said, Mom, everybody we know plays video games. And they weren't exaggerating. According to Entertainment Software Association, 2.5 billion people on this planet are gamers. A gamer simply refers to someone who plays video games. That's roughly one third of humanity. My boys helped me discover an entire world that I knew nothing about, let alone knew how to parent. Gaming today is a connected, multiplayer, interactive entertainment experience. It's full of competition, problem-solving, puzzles, logic. Good stuff, right? It's also full of conversations, culture, history, musical scores, art, dialogue, moral choices, stuff you actually want your kids to learn. Plus, gaming has philosophy, strategy, and amazing skills. I'm going to pause there. So I grew up playing uh, the first Nintendo, right? Super Mario Brothers and such. Uh, gaming has gotten a lot more complex, as she says. Do you agree, though, with her, or do you think this is a little bit of a uh, rosy assessment of video gaming? 
Well, if you skip ahead in the article a little bit, uh, she does sort of assume what somebody reading it might be thinking like, oh, well, you didn't say any of the the negative effects. And she does kind of own she owns up to that as well. And it links to the full TED Talk. I would encourage you to go watch the TED Talk. Not that I, you know, agree with every TED Talk, obviously, but there I think I think part of what I find so interesting about this article and the timing of this article, because we're all in a quarantine pandemic reality, my guess is a lot of parents are maybe feeling even more exacerbated by their kids gaming. And I thought this could, I don't know, maybe offer a helpful potential counter narrative to what is so predominantly often seen as a negative or at best a neutral. You know what I mean? I feel like there's already an avalanche of articles and stories kind of taking that approach. So I, I, I did find it interesting. Like, Oh, this is a, this is a different, unique take. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't propose that this is the only take that, you know, parents and grandparents could take. I wouldn't even suggest it, but I thought it, it provided an interesting kind of counter narrative to what we often hear about the world of gaming. Yeah, I think the answer is um, just there's nothing that, like you said, inherently good or bad about gaming. There's nothing inherently good or bad about your phone or whatever else. It's when it's done, you know, in excess or uh, and so I think done uh, well, it's it's great. She does. Uh, she does answer my question there about, yeah, you know, sometimes you can spend too much time and it can be a drain. She says, well, my husband watches other people play games. He's a big 49er fan. This past season, a game went into overtime and ended up lasting for four and a half hours. Did I go lecture my husband and say, you're rotting your brain away and wasting your life? Hmm. No, I chose to let him enjoy watching pro sports. I was like, oh, guilty as charged on that <laughs> right, one. Right. So she did answer that. Uh, I, I, you know, I, like I told you, my kids, especially my son. So if, if you're newer to the show, I have an older daughter than a son, than a daughter, and he is 12 and he'll go downstairs, play PS4. Uh, and it, the one thing that is fascinating to me, uh, is that he'll play usually sports games, Madden or NBA 2K or something like that. And he's regularly playing with other people. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, it just fascinates me because when I was growing up, right, you just played Nintendo with your brother or by yourself or whatever right. else. And so she isn't wrong that there is this uh, he's playing with buddies that he goes to school with. Right. This is another way for them to interact. And like you brought up in the midst of uh, in the midst of the pandemic, we actually early on in the pandemic uh, kind of up to what we let him do on the games. Like, I think we got him some sort of subscription that allows him to play with friends or whatever else, because, you know, the kids needed something to do. And so I think, like you said, it's a good counterpoint here, because usually we all we read is video games rot your brains. Kids are just doing them for five hours a day. Now, if you've got one of those kids who's playing through the night and stuff, I might consider, you know, challenging you to have a conversation and reconsider that. But I think uh, this article certainly makes a really good point. Let me just read a little more what she writes here. She says, the boys continue to teach me more things. For example, they told me that when I shut off the game, they get a suspension explaining, mom, we have a responsibility and you keep asking us to pause the game. You can't pause an online game. Then they said to me, you actually heard us when you call us loners and losers. We're live on a headset in a multiplayer game with our friends, and we're actually meeting new, real people. And she kind of talks about learning some of the ways around that and later says, in gaming, there's levels and leagues and rewards to be earned. So I figured if it's important to him, it needed to be important to me, too. This is exactly what Dr. Chris Haskell, associate clinical professor and esports head coach from Boise State University, says about his esports scholar athletes. He's looking for gamers that have goals and are willing to improve in their game. In fact, did not know this, many colleges now give scholarships for esports, and both the military and other industries now use video game type simulations in their jobs. So there's a whole lot more thinking, and this is what I referenced earlier, 
She says, by now you may be thinking, well, she didn't bring up any of the bad stuff about video games. And you're right. It's true. There are concerns with online communications and other issues, but that's why it's even more important to be involved in a gamer kid's life. In my own home, my sons and I have maintained an open dialogue about online behavior and balance. Now, years later, I know my younger son still games with his older brother, even though they're over 300 miles apart. That melts my heart. Gaming has kept their connection close. My advice isn't just for parents. It's for grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, godparents, good friends, school administrators, and other relatives. Be curious. And Here's mm-hmm. a simple solution. Start a conversation with your gamer kid by asking them these three questions. One, what games do you play? Two, why do you enjoy playing those particular games? And three, can I watch you game sometime? If we don't embrace gaming, we might lose connection with the people that we love most. Has that been your experience in kind of navigating some of this with your own kids? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's weird. You go from being like the young person to being like the old person. And and I do think that sometimes with video games and especially the role they play now, the older people like us, the older parents, the parents can just be like, I don't understand that it's just a waste of time. And you're missing an opportunity to really connect with your kids. Even if you don't play, sometimes I'll just go sit in the couch and talk to them and watch them play sometimes. And it's kind of fun. So I think this is good. She's won me over a little bit. You know, I still want to put up some, I'd still want to put up some boundaries around it, but, uh, I do. I, I enjoy her take on this. Yeah. And again, we realize this is a conversation that uh, a lot of us maybe don't necessarily see eye to eye on. So the article is at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. We'd love to know where do you land on all this, whether with yourself or with your kids and uh, maybe what are some suggestions you have going forward coming up next? I thought this phrase was interesting. We've heard a lot about social distancing. What about social media distancing as the key to quelling the information pandemic. That's coming up next in the second hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking social media distancing, and then a little bit later, what will the new normal look like going forward? You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome back to the common good this is part two of this show here on this lovely what is today what is today brian wednesday oh it's something i didn't even <laughs> think of it i was like what did i there was a moment when you asked me there where i couldn't remember what day it was i, was like, Wait, I mean i think we're probably not alone in that at yeah. all they all kind of blend together now at this point which you know has its pros and cons i imagine mm-hmm. real briefly Before we dive into this article, social media distancing, is this the key to quelling the information pandemic? A couple of things to let you know about. Uh, You can find us on Facebook if you like, the Common Good Radio Show. We post articles there. You can send us messages for suggestions. We really do welcome all of that feedback. You can like the page, share the page, review the page. Any interaction is helpful. Plus, we're podcasted on literally every conceivable podcast platform and uh, going the extra mile as Jesus commanded us to, to subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us out in the show a whole ton. We're super grateful for those of you who have done that. It's weird. It's weird to talk about social media uh, because I feel like so much of what everyone's reality right now is in some way social media. I know plenty of people probably have you know, deleted Facebook from their phone. I know that you've talked about doing that in the past, at least for vacations and stuff. But I imagine, though, social media is probably uh, as big a part of our lives right now as it ever has been for many of us. And this article simply reads, social media distancing is the key to quelling the information pandemic. Language is a virus and you can help flatten the curve. Why don't you uh, get us into this article a little bit? Yeah, the author, Efrat Livni, 
Uh, first of all, by the way, this is at Forge. Their saying is great. It says, Forge, beat yesterday. That's, that's good. I like that. Beat yesterday. Uh, the article begins this way. The beat writer William Burroughs once said that a language is a virus from outer space, and he didn't mean it allegorically. Fake news, long before the phrase entered the national lexicon, was part of his evidence. Pieces of misinformation spreading quickly from person to person behave just like uh, viral mechanisms, Burroughs said. Aliens invading unwary hosts, feeding and growing stronger as they spread. Hmm. With the unprecedented communication power of the Internet and social media, linguistic virality uh, has reached epic proportions. The writer and futurist, ooh, a futurist, uh, Richard Watson, has gone so far as to say that we are living in an information pandemic, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with hastily compiled, badly sourced, and unverified data. There is now too much information and opinion circulating too fast, he, he said. The result is a nonstop assault of the negative, nasty, and poorly informed. That said, we've never been better equipped to understand the dangers of unchecked language virality uh, or to flatten the curve. We know that words weaponized as fake news on social media can be used to manipulate and undermine democracies as they did with Brexit uh, and the 2016 presidential election. And because of the coronavirus spread, we are beginning to better understand the myriad uh, ways that we're in, uh, intricately connected and the responsibilities we bear for our fellow humans. So for the greater good, consider social media distancing with collective action. We could quell the first postmodern pandemic. So they're phrasing this uh, using the imagery of the pandemic, but really saying uh, too much information out there and uh, that we need to do something about it. It's kind of an interesting take to say that there's just too much information available. Yeah, and I feel like I see a lot of people writing more so now than in my lifetime about how connected we actually are. Um, that seems to be universal, regardless of your political or theological persuasion, too, which I feel like is it's an interesting. I wonder how we'll teach this 40 years from now. Like, will we actually hold to this connectedness? Will this be a good thing that we're now more keenly aware of? Or will it be something that I don't know? I, I don't even know how to predict that, to be honest, but I, I, I am really curious about how we'll look back at this. But I like this next category. It says individual versus structural change. In a recent opinion piece in The Guardian, the tech journalist Leo Morani suggested that social media platforms such as Facebook should build social distancing into their interfaces. Hmm. They could implement antiviral design, Marion argues, by deliberately creating, quote, friction for the user that makes it harder to share information. What he's advocating is structural systemic change not individual action. Marani argues that personal efforts to quell the info tsunami are futile, empty, uh, empty gestures in the grand scheme of things like skewing flying or plastic straws, reducing your personal doom scrolling or enforcing social media evening media free evenings might be good for your own mental health, but they don't solve the bigger problem. My belief is strongly that individual action is not the answer. He told me these things are structural which I, again raises a really interesting point because I've heard countless people say, I'm going to delete it from my phone so I use it less, or I'm going to download an app that kind of polices some of my usage, or like he's, you know, like he's proposing here, we have uh, a no phone at dinner table rule. All of those things are, I think are really, really good. I've not heard a whole lot of people talking about how to go after some of these things systemically or structurally, which I, I think is really fascinating. Well, the difficult part, I think it is fascinating. The difficult part of that, right, is uh, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, something like Facebook is in the business to make money. They don't want to make it more difficult. They don't want you off their platform. Right. <laughs> they want everything 
as simple as possible. They want you on there. And that's where uh, this becomes difficult. And uh, but I do think he's probably right. He likens it to, um, you know, picking up trash in the ocean, that it's a good thing to do. But uh, it, in the end, it doesn't make that big of a difference for one person to be doing one thing. And so it, it does raise the great question as to what is the right answer for this. I do wonder too, this would be a bit of a dark example, but let's assume we can actually climb into the brains of the people making the decisions at Facebook. Mm-hmm. Obviously we're the product, right? We've talked about that before on the show. Yep. Um, a free platform. We're the product. We're, we're what's being sold. Doesn't it make sense to you though? And I, I don't know the, the actual metrics on this, but if, for example, uses the phrase doom scrolling, if someone's doom scrolling gets so bad that they sort of, come to themselves and realize this is taking over my life. I'm just going to delete the thing altogether. Isn't that counterproductive to what Facebook's bottom line is? Wouldn't that, wouldn't it actually serve them better to their, let's say even just to their greed. uh, If more people stayed on longer over the long haul, rather than, Oh man, they're on 17 hours a day, but then they eventually hit a wall where they realize how addicted they are to it. And then they cancel it all together or they delete it off their phone. And you know what I mean? Like, I almost wonder if it wouldn't even, benefit their bottom line to put some of these parameters in place so that they can keep them on the hook longer before they realize like how, you know, how bad that it's, it's gotten. I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that. That's interesting. I, you've uh, shared before how they make some of these platforms, you know, basically to be somewhat addictive, right? And Not so somewhat think, outright. Yeah. And that's why I would guess that uh, if we're going to take, uh, you know, a cynical view. They're probably going, that person who's on their hours a day, they might say they're going to get off the platform. They'll be back. <laughs> They'll come mm-hmm. back. And um, that's what tends to happen. And so, yeah, it is interesting because we often talk about this issue, rightfully so, from just a personal side. You've got to put boundaries in your own life, delete these off your phone if you need to, whatever else. Uh, so to think that the bigger societal issues uh, that are at play here um require more systemic changes, I think is something I haven't really thought about. Well, let me, let me just read the way the article ends because I, I do want to end on sort of a, an uptick here and not just say, Hey, this is all terrible, but here's suggestions. So the heading is a model for socially distanced information consumption. Watson, who advises tech companies on what tomorrow will bring and famously predicted this pandemic shirks social media almost completely. The platforms are quote, the enemy of focus, attention and depth. He says, promoting discord and dissatisfaction. Watson advises taking in news slowly, pausing often, and reading on paper whenever possible, calling it a, quote, vastly superior technology for handling complex topics. As a futurist, his counterintuitive approach includes reading retrospectively, digging into dated publications as he prepares to make predictions. He says this allows him to see an expanded landscape and draw more connections, and it helps him feel calm enough to think clearly. Looking back, He sees what turned out to be important and what was just noise. Each of us can limit that noise, too. The coronavirus crisis has shown the status quo isn't fixed. That's a good word. Everything can shift quickly and we will all play a part. Our actions spreading sickness or promoting wellness. The same goes for the information pandemic. We can't save the Internet, but we can mind our spaces, limiting the harm we cause through careful and responsible engagement. I thought at the very least it was a very... Mm -hmm curious premise and one that I would love. I know I say this every time I would love to hear y'all's feedback ironically posted on our Facebook page uh, (laughs) at the very least, leave a comment. And uh, we'd love to know how you kind of grapple with this particular idea coming up next, a man that we've referenced a number of times on the show, Michael Frost. 
He writes, The Lonely Crowd, Churches Dying Due to Friendlessness. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. And uh, if you're just joining us live on the radio right now, I cannot encourage you enough to go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, particularly our interview with uh, Chris Butler of the And Campaign, incredible campaign, incredible organization. We got a new book called Compassion and Conviction that uh, is a timely book. I feel like that's something that a lot of us are grappling with in our own rights and uh, highly encourage you not only check it out, but subscribe, rate, and review, share it with a friend. All of that helps us out a whole ton. And Michael Frost, who's someone that we've referenced a number of times, sometimes can be a bit of a controversial character, online, but I think uh, is, a, is a great writer, great thinker, a lover of the church, both small C and big C. And he wrote, uh, this was just a little over a week ago, The Lonely Crowd, Churches Dying Due to Friendlessness. Why don't you get us into this article? Yeah, I read this. I saw this getting passed around, and I think this is so good. Uh, he said, I've lost count of the number of Christians who've told me they either stopped attending church or left their church to join another one because they couldn't make any friends there. They report that the church people were friendly enough. They were hospitable and welcoming. As one person told me, they're nice to you, but no one becomes your friend. Mm. And it hurts when all that friendliness leads only to friendlessness. In the 1950s, sociologist David Reisman coined the term the lonely crowd, in which in part to describe collectives of people who live according to common traditions and conforming values, but who barely know or like each other. Mm. I fear the church is in danger of becoming just such a lonely crowd. I know pastors think long and hard about how to be better preachers and leaders, how to calibrate the church's ministries to meet needs and serve others, how to be more missional, more adaptive, more innovative. These are all good things, but is it possible that all that leadership development, visioning, and ministry planning might be wasted if people can't find friends and just drift away? Before hosting any more conferences or seminars on vision casting, living your best life, or finding your spiritual gift, how about we start equipping people in friendship making? Mm. Becoming and being a friend isn't easy. It takes intentionality and training. It might be your church's next major challenge. And then I think there's an important next paragraph. Let me quickly read. He says, it's not just the church. Before we start beating ourselves up about friendless churches can be, uh, how friendless churches can be. Uh, We should note that this is a society-wide problem. In his book, Social, by Matthew Lieberman, he reports on a survey of people's social connections that was done in 1985 and again in 2004. People were asked to list their friends in response to the question, over the last six months, who are the people with whom you discussed matters important to you? In 1985, the common number of friends listed was three. 59% of respondents listed three or more friends fitting this description. But by Mm -hmm. 2004, the most common number of with friends with whom you would discuss important matters was zero. Yikes. And only 37% of respondents listed three or more friends. Back in 1985, only 10% indicated they had zero confidants. Uh, in 2004, this number skyrocketed to 25%. As Lieberman says, one out of every four of us is walking around with no one to share our lives with. So that's kind of the premise here. He says, uh, I think both these men are so true. Uh, this uh, church is, uh, my, my own church included, right? We've got the name, you and I both serve at churches with community in the name. Uh, we, we, we bang home this concept of connection and community. But I think what surveys are finding is that often that doesn't manifest itself in kind of depth of friendship and lifelong friendship. It's kind of becomes more uh, acquaintances by proximity. And then he goes on to say, and it's true 
uh, societally. But man, isn't this an opportunity for the church to do something different than what's going on around us? I think this is such an important article right here. Yeah, and I would wonder what pushback people might give because I know a lot of people who found their lifelong friends at churches, which one, should be celebrated, and two, doesn't mean that it's not still happening to the vast majority of people. I think sometimes that can feel like a disconnect people don't know how to overcome because they're thinking, well, I, I've found my best friends at church. It's weird to me that, you know, everyone hasn't. And there's probably a myriad of factors, you know, when you really hear people talk about how they met their friends, especially in a place like a, like a church community, it seems like it runs a gamut. Either they were placed yep. on the same mission strip team together, or they sort of, you know, by happenstance joined their small group, or they just happened to sit next to them one random Sunday. A lot That's of right. that can feel really like left to chance, but I think what Frost goes on to say next is one of the most compelling and interesting and convicting aspects to this. And it's a, a sermon I actually gave a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago now about listening. And he simply says, church people aren't good listeners. He says, like my first point, it might be fair to say most people aren't good listeners. The inability or disinterest in asking meaningful, meaningful questions that indicate an interest in another person is a huge impediment to making friends. And he wrote about that last year. He says, listening is key. When someone is a good listener, they're able to seek similarity with someone else. It's impossible to show empathy or celebrate the positive in a person without first hearing from them. And without an awareness of similarity, empathy, and celebration, friendships just don't get started. Listening is not the same as hearing or waiting. Therapists refer to active listening to distinguish between giving someone your full concentration or just passively hearing them. And I think about the Paul Tillich quote who said, the first duty of love is to listen. Or the other quote that I love is David Osberger who says, uh, listening and loving are so close to each other that for the average person, they're completely indistinguishable. Like hmm. the idea of loving people, but not actually listening to them or not actively listening to them or giving them our full, our full attention, which I imagine is made even more difficult right now when a lot yes. of us are trying to listen via FaceTime or Zoom or phone call. I, I imagine this is getting more difficult, not easier in the midst of a pandemic. I totally agree with that. He is next one. He says, church people struggle to be vulnerable. Friendship is more than just listening, although that's an essential start. Getting close to people, becoming their friends involves something more. It involves vulnerability. Face it, people don't become besties by only discussing the weather. Mm. Uh, and for sake of time, I'll read what he says at the end. He said, it's in the courage of vulnerability we find connection with another and then potentially friendship with them. So it's this inability to be vulnerable. Uh, and I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. That is another blocker. So listening and vulnerability. Yeah, and he goes on to talk about uh, busyness, which I think in a lot of ways can be the enemy to vulnerability. I love what he quotes here from Brene Brown. He says, the irony is that we attempt to disown our own difficult stories to appear more whole or more acceptable, but our wholeness, even our wholeheartedness, actually depends on the integration of all our experiences, including the falls. If we can mm -hmm. share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. And if you've not, by the way, read any from Benet Brown about shame or vulnerability or courage. Yeah. I highly recommend just do a Google search, watch her TED Talks, get her books. There's there's just really, really good stuff there. I, I'd love for the last minute or so we have here, Brian, talk to me about this last part where he says church people need to be less busy. He says friendships take time. It's the thing spouses and friends fight about the most. Unavailability. What what role does busy, busyness play in uh, in being good friends? I think in the struggle of friendship societally and in the church, I think this is number one. I think this is it. 
even pre-pandemic, right? Especially pre-pandemic, we we fill our schedules. And so what I found in my own life, to be honest with you, is that uh, I can get just running around and I don't have so much as friends as I have acquaintances that I get close to, but it's all about proximity, right? So my son's on a baseball team. I'm with these parents for a whole season. We become friendly, right? We laugh, have a lot of fun, but then the season ends and we all go our different ways. And I think that's what happens at churches. When we're at church, we like each other, we're there, but how many times has somebody left your church that you're a part of and you never hear from them again? Like it right. just kind of goes away. And I think a lot of that, the proximity portion of it, I think is, has to do with busyness. We just mm-hmm. get crazy. And so I'm so busy. I'll just kind of hang with the people who are busy with me in this spot. And then when I'm no longer in that spot, I move on to the next people. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up one day going, who are the people who've been with me for a long time? I do think that's, that busyness is at the core of a lot of this. Yeah, and if I could recommend something, uh, John Mark Comer, pastor out in the uh, Pacific Northwest, he wrote a really wonderful book based on a quote from Dallas Willard called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And uh, it's a really, really easy but convicting read about like just taking an honest look at the pace of our lives. And he does link that you know, back towards our, our own spiritual formation, which I think, mm. again, is a, uh, this is a really important conversation. And in somewhat of an attempt to link some of these segments together. Here's another one coming up next out of Miss You Alliance that reads the importance and challenge of diverse friendships. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian James Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places, a heap of places, smorgasbord of places, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good Instagram and Twitter at common good talk and wherever it is you get podcasts subscribe rate and review to not only make us feel better but you'll feel better for doing something nice for the two of us so it's a it's a win-win really it's just a free it's a free dopamine hit and uh, we're super grateful for all of you who have done that already here's an article out of miss you alliance that well I think they've just been posting a lot of really wonderful stuff since the start of the show and I've been really grateful for that but this Headline reads, The Importance and Challenge of Diverse Friendships. This was written back in February, but I think still holds a lot of significance for us right now. And Brian Fromm is going to get us into it. Yeah, it's written by Dorothy uh, Little Greco. She says, both sociologists and reconciliation experts agree that having cross-cultural friendships is one of the best remedies for exposing and eliminating racist ideologies and behaviors. According to statistics, uh, most of us are doing rather poorly at this. Reuters reported that about 40% of white Americans and about 25% of non-white Americans are surrounded exclusively by friends of their own race. Why is it so difficult to form friendships with people who are different from ourselves, especially for those of us who are white? And more importantly, what is the cost personally and corporately if we maintain homogeneous friendship circles? I'll pause there. Uh, interestingly, like you said, this article was written um, way back in February, way uh, back, but it's uh, certainly timely now. You think about all that. Well, hasn't all that's happened since the beginning of February? Yeah, right. Um, does that stat surprise you? Forty percent of white Americans, uh, specifically, are surrounded exclusively by friends of their own race. That's uh, that surprise you at all? It does not surprise me. I don't know why it doesn't surprise me. I do wonder if, like, if I were to include that in a sermon, I wonder what percentage of people would be surprised. I don't think, and again, you're right, a lot has changed since February. One of the things that I was, I was really convicted by a pastor named Rich Velodas, and he's uh-huh. this was much more 
recent, like the last month or so, he was saying that one of the things that he's been challenged to do whenever quoting someone in a sermon is to include a photo of them. And he kind of unpacks why and realized after a couple of weeks of doing this, like how how easy it is to miss. They're like, wow, the five quotes I used in today's sermon were all white men. And, you know, there's obviously nothing wrong with quoting from a white man. He's like, but something about seeing the photo in my yeah. slide deck really illuminated for me. Like, wow, man, that's I've maybe been reading from a, a very like n- narrow strand of theologians and scholars and pastors. And uh, I think I think that might be a discipline that I'd like to just implement anyway, to be honest, just as an act of accountability. So I think they're connected. I think if, you know, if our churches are looking that way, then doesn't it make sense that that's also like how a lot of us would maybe even just accidentally drift into leading our lives. And if someone's not challenging us, challenging us to think about it differently, then, uh, you know, I imagine this is a little inevitable, but the article does kind of go on to offer some solutions. So I, I'd love, I'd love to know if you're surprised by any of this. So the number's a little higher than I thought, but I'm not all that surprised. And I, I think quite frankly, one of the reasons is, um, you know, uh, Think about the suburbs you and I have talked about where we live, and they're pretty homogeneous. You know, a lot of this uh, requires some work uh, as opposed to living in a very diverse area where I think a diversity of friendships is a lot more easily formed. We've said that about churches and schools and other things. Uh, and so I do think that that's a problem and and that it requires probably um, just some intentionality. And so uh, I'm interested to see what the solutions are that she has here. Uh, let me just, I don't have all the time in the world, but let me just pick apart some of the parts that I like the most. Um, it says, to pursue and cultivate ethnically diverse relationships, we need to identify and face our fears. Fear has many iterations, fear of the unknown, of conflict, of change, or fear of losing one's identity or status. We move through life amassing preferences and forming deeply held beliefs about everything from the food we eat to the music we play in church on Sunday morning to how we value other people. Differences that arise when we build relationships within a diverse group often conflict with those preferences. Rather than affirming or validating our choices and beliefs, differences force us to evaluate our convictions, which can result in disequilibrium or even insecurity. That's part of why we sometimes resist rather than embrace diversity. In the process of getting to know someone who is different, we often have one of two responses. Either our our curiosity gets piqued and we lean in, wanting to hear, learn, and value from a new perspective, or we feel threatened or judged and lean out. The fear of difference is primal and often beyond logic. If we feed our fears, differences can trigger a flight, freeze, or fight response, even when there's no real danger. Pressing into diverse relationships can also trigger fear of conflict, which can be threatening, especially if the relationship is fragile. Given the choice, most of us will avoid conflict whenever possible. Personally, I'm not a fan of conflict, but I'm aware that avoidance usually comes in the form of manipulation, control, or emotional dishonesty and leads to a false peace. False peace purports, I don't hate anyone, therefore, I'm not a racist, or I don't see color. False peace pacifies, but also prevents us from seeing, honoring, and loving each other. If we want diverse friendships, we can't avoid conflict. That's a good word. In a staff debrief, when a Chinese-American associate pastor points out that none of the sermon illustrations in the recent series on relationships have reflected his lived experience, the white male senior pastor will have a choice to make. He could be defensive or dismissive. He could say, or he could say something along the lines of, tell me more. How he navigates the confrontation will inform how welcoming his church will be to those who are not white and also how safe it is for his team to disagree. When we practice non-defensive listening 
and navigating conflict in our friendships, we'll be more open to being challenged as we lead. Which again, there's that notion of listening that Frost was talking about in the last segment, which I'm realizing more and more is a really, really important common thread throughout this whole conversation. Yeah, absolutely. This whole thing about not being defensive. How many times have we talked about that over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, and right. And like you said, listening and being willing to have conflict. Uh, all of this requires work. I think, uh, again, linking it to what we talked about in the last segment, uh, sometimes our crazy, busy schedules and our lives that we've set up cause this to, you know, when you add more things that are that sound like they're going to be hard and take time, uh, it, it can be easy to go. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. But uh, I think this article does a good job showing us, you know, it's going to take uh, some humility, uh, but it's also just going to take some effort. It's going to take some time and some listening. And and that's going to be difficult for some of us. Yeah. And I think acknowledging the, the difficulty is really important because sometimes and again, this is just a short nine minute segment. So I don't in any way want to even. Uh, imply the like, yeah, yeah, just lean in. You know, that's all. That's all it takes. Like, I realize it's <laughs> difficult yeah. work for a lot of us. And I think, I think maybe even you were asking me, was it a couple of weeks ago? Like, what is the significance of this? Like, why, why would you say this is important? And I, yeah. I love, I love what this author says here. Says one of the most compelling visions in the Bible can be found in the Book of Revelation, where John writes of quote every tribe and nation and people and language bowing down to worship God side by side. This is not describing a universalist mosh pit, but rather a beautiful, diverse gathering that represents every people group who ever walked the earth. If ultimately we're all going to be together as one body, and if our job as followers of Christ is to usher in God's kingdom here and now, learning to value and honor differences should be a priority for all of us. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. These three groups represent the major divisions of humanity during the early church. Paul was not saying we're all the same, but that through Christ, the dividing walls have now come down. As Sheila writes in her new book, Healing Racial Trauma, it's up to us to stop rebuilding them. I, I'm super convicted by that, even especially because there's probably ways that you and I are building these things and aren't even aware of it. And I'd love, Brian, in like the last 10 seconds we have left, what what encouragement would you give to someone who uh, maybe would normally find themselves defensive, but after hearing this, they're thinking, okay, tell me more. Like what hope or encouragement would you give to that person? I would say that you're on the right track. The old tell me more. Uh, I would uh, start to put into practice some listening. I would probably, uh, off the top of my head, maybe uh, take out to coffee somebody uh, who doesn't look like you or, or hasn't had the same background as you and just go listen, listen to their story and uh, see what you can learn. Have this conversation continued. I think, like you said, the key to this story, I think here is uh, humility and, and listening. That's a good word, man. Well, coming up next as we land the plane here out of the age, what will the new normal look like? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good, the home stretch. As I say, I don't know why I keep saying it that way. Uh, I, don't, I don't talk like that in normal life, but here on this show, apparently I do. Last segment of the day, if you're just joining us live via the radio, fret not, we are podcasted on whatever platform you listen to. And I would encourage you check out the podcast. We had some great interviews this week so far, and uh, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review if you wouldn't mind, because that helps us out a whole ton. Also, super important news. Today, August 5th, is National Work Like a Dog Day. Are you working like a dog today, Brian? I'm not. Uh, nope. it's, it's also National Oyster Day. Are you a fan of oysters? I am not. Okay. And it's also National Underwear Day. Are you wearing underwear? 
I am. Right on. One out of three. <laughs> One out of three, Brian. Way to go. Can I just make a point that I have two dogs and neither of them do any work? This whole work like a dog thing. I don't even know where that came from. It's sort of like people are like, oh, sleep like a baby. You're like, you've never seen a baby before. Then. <laughs> Find me this baby who's sleeping. Yeah, so right. all the time. <laughs> it is funny. I wonder if uh, we should do a whole segment on like the etymology of idioms sometime, because I feel like a lot of those phrases you're like, that's the meaning has now come to mean the opposite of, yes. of what that actually is saying. That would be that would be interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll look into that as a possible uh, future segment sometime. Uh, here's a question that I feel like you and I have been grappling with probably since the middle of March, like when we really were getting, beginning to get our heads around what it is that we were looking at. And again, how naive were middle of March, Brian and Ian, do we have any idea? Do we have any idea then what it would look like now? Any, 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 we should go back and listen to those shows. Cause I, my guess is what I recall was a couple of shows us being like, hey, sorry, we're talking about COVID again. Like, you remember there was a Facebook post where you, I still vividly remember this, where you wrote, uh, what should we talk about today or something? And a buddy of yours uh, jokingly said, anything but COVID. Right, <laughs> now that, they, right. that was like, that was middle of March or even early, like, like maybe early March. So we could never, do you remember when it all started? We're like, I think we'll be back in church by Easter. That, that Easter is going to be awesome. And now I'm like, are we going to be in church by next Easter? <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember yeah. really thinking that I remember uh, a number of people wondering, you know, gosh, hopefully, I mean, obviously by Easter though, everything will be fine, which is right. again, it's really strange to now have a five day a week show recorded for you, you and I to go back and listen to and like realize how much we, we just didn't know then. That's but right. I feel like most people's minds are kind of looking to the future. And we keep using this phrase, what will the new normal look like? And uh, I found this article out of The Age, and it says, experience from previous epidemics or pandemics, such as the Spanish flu or swine flu, provide us with important lessons. History has a habit of repeating itself. What's going on here? Uh, Yeah, it says, uh, let me just scroll down. I thought I had it there. I do not think life will be business as usual post-COVID, the author writes. This is a generational catastrophe. That's the truth. We will learn from this pandemic and we will create a new normal. We will need to make cities and country towns more resilient in the future. As an urban and regional planner and former chief commissioner of the Victorian Building Authority, I am, the author says, I am certain there needs to be change in the way in which our cities and country areas function and how we can properly build resilience in our community. That will mean different things will happen to make our cities and towns great places to live, work, and play. Social distancing will remain a practice and we will notice people, including children, will have a heightened awareness uh, of personal hygiene. Let me pause there. Have you given thought that even, I don't even know what when this is over even means anymore, but like when things are at least a little more uh, stable or whatever, it is weird to think that social distancing is just here to stay. But I think with each week that this goes by, like I have a hard time picturing people just hugging and you know, just kind of being, I think social distancing is one of the things that's going to be just kind of a normal part of our lives more than it ever was before. Hey, I don't know that I buy that necessarily only because I feel like there's so many people already not social distancing while we're still in the middle of this. I do wonder if it will be as widespread or universal as you're proposing. Again, I, I mean, I could be way wrong. Who knows? I just feel like, and again, our little mini universe is church world, Right. Uh, and again, it's very different in different places around the country and the planet. But I feel like I see photos all the time of 
people gathering and they're, you know, they're hugging each other and they're doing family reunions and they're, I don't know. I do. I wonder if I, I, my guess is that like big, massive gatherings of people like packed concerts. Yeah. Uh, I think that'll probably look a lot different. But when it comes to like the relational piece of like, yeah, yeah, still having friends over, I'm still going to go to church and greet everyone with a hug. I, I, I mean, obviously there'll be a downtick, but I, I just, I don't know that it'll be, it'll be interesting as, as yeah, as universal as maybe, maybe you think it is. That'll be interesting. We'll see. It goes on to say neighborhoods, cities, and country towns will become more tribal. People working from mm-hmm. home will be the new normal and their weekly grocery shop and other services will be met by the local neighborhood center. We will see a lift in patronage and popularity of these centers, and there will be a greater social connection to the local neighborhood. Hmm. Online shopping will become even more popular, and there will be a shift in the demand for commercial and retail floor space in our larger activity centers. Hmm. The central business uh, district in Melbourne, this guy's writing out of Australia, will be significantly affected. There'll be less demand for high-rise living as people are troubled by higher densities and being so close to each other. Uh, sharing elevators and other uh, communal activities. Uh, he goes on to start talking about the workspace being more of a change. Do you, do you agree with him uh, that these some of these changes, working from home, kind of um, probably not gathering in places like malls and other stuff? Do you think he's right on here? I think so. And I, and I think it's interesting, too, that you know Chris Butler was even talking earlier in the show about politics as a localized expression. Uh, I do wonder if this pandemic is only going to accelerate that or amplify that to some degree. And he goes on to talk about homes need to adapt and be better designed to accommodate these changing work practices. People need to think about keeping healthy. He says uh, he talks about office working environments also means neighborhoods will be places where people live, work and play. Talks about um, public versus private transportation, migration, international travel will never be the same. That's that's true. Families will be spending time together in social distance holidays. Caravans, camping, and day trips will become more popular. Hmm. He says country areas will both win and lose in this shift. I think that's interesting. Um, As planners and decision makers, we will need to plan for the increase in demands of this change. Everything from road maintenance to construction, accommodation, and the use of public land and the need uh, will need to be properly provided, maintained, and managed. That's that's a like systemic, big picture types of observations that. I've only given like a very tiny amount of thought to. And I think uh, realizing how much more we still have to learn is is daunting. But also, I feel like I'm glad people are writing stuff like this to really think it through. Yeah, it says the intergenerational impact will be huge. Mental health will be a focus. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, cities and towns must connect people better economically, environmentally, socially and emotionally. So this article is chock full. This guy's a founding and managing director of Clement Stone Town Planners. And so this is the way his mind works. And I do think, I think we've come to realize now that things are not going to go back to quote unquote normal as in the way things used to be. There's going to be Mm -hmm. changes uh, and some things won't change. And so it is interesting to read an article like this, like how structurally and uh, how deeply are things just going to be different? And I I think um, that we're even starting to see it now, but we won't know it fully uh, for another year, two years, just as kind of things go back to uh, this all becomes more of our normal. Yeah. And I, I think this is definitely one of those that I would love to hear from our uh, our common good community, because I'd love to know what changes people have already made, what changes they're anticipating, what from this list really resonates with you. Or what are you thinking? Like, no, I think he's way off on this one. He also goes on to talk about like the increased uh, desire to live in suburban spaces, 
which mm-hmm. I don't feel like I've heard a whole lot of that from friends of mine who live in metropolitan areas. So I'd be really curious to know, what do you all think of this? He's taking kind of his best swing at what some of this new normal will look like. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? You can do all of that over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, that is one more hump day in the books. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.